0: Hello, I'm Arielle Kroon. And I'm Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to Season 2 of Solarpunk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because.
1: If solarpunk as a genre of fiction
0: dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, Solarpunk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about. Before we get started with episode 2.9, in which Ariel interviews Dr. Jenny Kerber, let me remind you that we need your support. Sign up for our Patreon in exchange for early access to episodes and bonus content. Or like us on social media, recommend us to a friend, or better yet, write a review of our podcast. Let other people know that we're here. And now for the episode.
1: So, hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of Solar Punk Presence. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Jenny Kerber, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Film Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Laurier's Waterloo campus is located on the shared traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. This land is part of the Dish with One Spoon Treaty. Dr. Kerber taught me the course that was my first introduction to studying the environment in an academic setting during my master's studies at WLU. In particular, her class introduced me to the idea of eco-criticism, a literary lens that can help us think about the way that the quote-unquote natural world is represented in the books and other media that we consume, and I'm excited to have her here today to talk with me about that. Dr. Kerber, thank you so much for agreeing to be here.
2: It's my pleasure. So perhaps
1: we can start out with a
2: definition. What is ecocriticism? Uh, well, I would describe it as a critical approach to literature and culture that's been around for really close to three decades now as a kind of formal subset of literary cultural studies. Sometimes today, ecocriticism gets folded in under the broader umbrella of the environmental humanities. Mm-hmm. which also encompasses things like environmental history, for instance, um, environmental philosophy, and a number of other disciplines. At its most basic level, you know, early definitions of ecocriticism, going back to kind of the mid to late 1990s, described it as looking at how the physical environment is portrayed in a text or represented in a text, you know, a literary or cultural work in particular. So, you know, ecocritics are really interested in representations of physical environments in literature, but also how that representation shapes how we think, perceive, and act. It asks questions like what leads us to damage our planetary home since at present moment we don't have anywhere else to go. What helps us to appreciate our, you know, surroundings physically mm. as well? What causes us to wonder at nature, or fear it, or nurture it? I think eco-criticism has always had a kind of activist bent as well. In that sense, it's a counterpart or an affiliate of other forms of political criticism mm-hmm. in literary and cultural studies, like feminist criticism, uh, postcolonial approaches, gay and lesbian, and, and um, LGBTQ plus uh, forms of approaches to literature as well. So, uh, among others. So it's sort of aligned with that as well. You know, it, there's a, a desire not just to know, but to do. Where did ecocriticism as a field come from? You kind of mentioned
1: uh, sort of adjacent fields, but then also that it sort of originated in the 1990s. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. I mean, there are different trajectories and different origin stories for ecocriticism, but as an academic discipline, I would locate it kind of in the mid to late 1990s and initially there were sort of two strains, mm-hmm. one being predominantly American and the other being more British. And and then, you know, you have Canadian approaches sort of falling in between those two things. The, the British strain, scholars tended to focus a lot on the Romantic period in literature. So think of poets like William Wordsworth mm-hmm. or Samuel Taylor Coleridge kind of poetry of nature, um, travel writing from that period, uh, mountaineering, you know, the the interest in the sublime experience of mm. nature. But you also have poems like, you know, Wordsworth's poem, Nutting, in which he's talking about being a boy and going to gather nuts from a tree and engaging in wanton destruction of the tree with his friends, and then and feeling a kind of regret about that and wrestling with that after. Right. Or, you know, a poem like Lord Byron's wonderful darkness that envisions the sun going out and what happens to humanity when the sun goes out. Um, you know, it's this very apocalyptic kind of poem that, that also speaks to its own historical time because he was writing in the wake of the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia, which which led to what was popularly called the year without a summer um, in Europe, that is, there was so much cloud cover and so much cool weather that people were very concerned, was this a permanent change? You know, they didn't necessarily understand these global systems. And also with the British strain you get uh, of eco criticism. you get quite a bit of Marxist work as well. Mm-hmm. So that's coming out of, for instance, scholars like Raymond Williams, who was right. a Marxist critic, famously wrote a book called The Country and the City, pushing people to think about The industrial means of production that underlie, or underlay, or underwrote a lot of the country house literature, for instance, in Britain. You know, while while some people were walking in the countryside courting and all that sort of thing, there were other people who were laboring these factories, right? That were propped up by colonialism and and other mechanisms. So that's sort of the British strain, and then and then in America, or especially the United States, you have. Historically, scholars looking at transcendentalist authors, 19th century writers like um, Henry David Thoreau, Walden, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Muir, but then a bit later, also an awareness of ecological strain through thinking about factories or this radical scaling up of agriculture. You might think of naturalist authors like uh, Frank Norris or Upton St. Clair's work about Chicago meatpacking um, called The Jungle. So that's right. early 20th century. So there's a strong strain of the kind of wilderness tradition and American eco-criticism, or at least what critics are interested in, but also interested in indigenous settler relations and different ways of knowing. And then sort of once you come up into the kind of mid-20th century in the United States, you see much more of a concern with pollution in in literature and writing, especially being kicked off with uh, Rachel Carson's landmark work, Silent Spring, from the early 1960s. And then then later on, you know, you you start to see more broadening of eco-critical concerns. So people are thinking about, you know, how do we Take post colonial approaches. You know, how do we think globally about these issues? How do we step outside of the framework of the nation state? How does indigeneity and thinking about indigenous ways of knowing and thought influence or cause us to rework or rethink some of our literary models? So, yeah, it's a very diverse field in that sense. I was going to
1: say, could you give our listeners an example of how we might use an ecocritical lens while we're thinking about a text? And you did mention some of the poetry, uh, the earlier poetry from the British, from British ecocriticism. But how about an example from that's a little bit more recent?
2: Well, as an example, in in my graduate class this term, I'm teaching a, a collection of short stories, interlinked short stories called Chemical Valley, written by David Hubert, who's a an author based in Halifax. Those stories are all set in and around Sarnia and area, mm-hmm. Sarnia, Ontario. And that region around Sarnia is popularly known as Chemical Valley um, because it is a major seat of the petrochemical industry. These interlinked short stories don't always directly reference oil or the petroleum industry. And yet that industry underwrites so much of human relation in those stories, you know, whether it's a plant worker whose wife is suffering from cancer or high school students who are marching at Fridays for the future, but are also feeling very disillusioned, <laughs> you know, and go swimming in the waterway, you know, which is right where all the freighters come in and go out. Um Yikes. So you get you know, you can think about how the environment is sometimes an overt topic mm-hmm. in a text, but I'm also very interested in um, how the environment side sometimes lurks underneath, and environmental anxieties and concerns lurk underneath the the surface of
1: texts. In our first episode, I referenced William Cronon's essay, "The Trouble with Wilderness," and the idea of it and it's a text I encountered in the course that I took with you. And as I recall, it sort of breaks down the roots of the white settler imaginary wilderness as some place that needs to be protected away from people, which is something that has really influenced decades of public policy and environmental nonprofit thinking here on Turtle Island. Is that an accurate summary, would you say?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's really kind of dealing with a a sort of American, a particular American idea of wilderness, North American idea of what wilderness is, because historically, you know, wilderness has meant different things. Often it was quite negative in Mm. much older literature. It wasn't the place you wanted to be, or, you know, it was a place you were cast out to. And, you know, only later does this idea of wilderness get kind of recuperated, partly through this romantic sublime, but also through You know, things like the establishment of national parks in the United States. But of course, you know, there's a kind of excision of the human in a lot of these constructions of wilderness, even the fact that indigenous people were often displaced forcibly off the land in order to create certain national parks, both in the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, there's this idea of wilderness as a kind of escape, but of course, escapism is also a problem. But it can also provide awe, which is very appealing. I think that the trouble with wilderness, even though Cronin wrote that essay some time ago, it's still very much with us. I mean, look at any SU.V ad you know on on television. A lot of those ads are trading on fantasies of of wilderness, you know, certainly. Right, there's that tension between you know
1: this wild, seemingly untouched space, and then you've got this gigantic car driving through it. So it's it's very easy for humans to penetrate into the wilderness, and it somehow exists somewhere. I don't know where those
2: commercials are filmed, but uh, it looks nice, I guess. Obviously, these ads are successful, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't keep making them. Um, yeah. So I think it's also appealing to a certain fantasy. That many of us have for escape, for purity, you know, for recreation of a particular kind. I mean, there have been some some more recent critiques of wilderness ideas coming through. For instance, a framework of disability studies. Mm. Um, you know, the British poet Polly Atkin has a a wonderful piece called "Why a Poem? Why is a Poem Always a Walk?" Mm. Really asking, you know, probing this idea of how so much nature writing and nature poetry is premised on walking. And what if walking isn't your predominant means of ambulation, you know, for getting around? Sometimes we get these other very interesting ways of, of coming at that question. But the idea of wilderness can also be expanded, I think, more po- in more positive directions, too. Like the, the Canadian poet Don Mackay, mm-hmm. in his book Vis-a-Vis, talks about wilderness in a, maybe a little bit more of an abstract way or an expansive or unpredictable way. He describes it as the ability of all things to elude the mind's appropriations. You know, the things that we can't control that nature does. That may just be your dog taking a crap on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, It doesn't necessarily mean that it's welcome, but it, there's something also kind of appealing about the fact that we can't control everything. in in the other than human world.
1: Pets are a very good example of that. You know, it's this little bit of wilderness that you think, ah, yes, this is my my domesticated animal. And then it goes ahead and destroys your chair. (laughs) And you're like, oh, that was not planned. This is wild.
2: (laughs) But I love you anyway. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And when thinking about the trouble with wilderness, you know, that was such a landmark essay of I guess kind of the late nineteen nineties. And in some ways, I think now the the concept that eco critics and environmental humanists are really mulling over and debating is I would call it the trouble with the Anthropocene today. Right. You know, it's a term with also now a lot of currency but is kind of a complicated one too, once once one probes beneath the surface beneath the surface you know what's what's the origin point of yeah. the anthropocene you know the fact that humans are have laid down a geological layer that our our presence constitutes a geological layer that will be read millions of years into the future mm-hmm. um but you know that idea of the anthropocene is really being questioned and troubled by and very productively so by, for instance, indigenous scholars, there's a lot can be said about that term. I think currently, right? Yeah, the debates over, you know, who
1: is the anthropos in the Anthropocene? Who mm-hmm. is the human who is de- causing this destruction? And um, is that just another expression of this arrogant human supremacy, um, which you know comes into a white supremacy as well, or flows from? Excuse me. So. Yeah, Yeah. that's um, a debate worth having, definitely. I wanted to ask you, uh, similarly, um, the term nature is a complicated issue. um, And I find myself having difficulties whenever I go to say things like human nature or humans versus nature um, and thinking, no, that's not quite accurate at all. Um, Could you uh,
2: explain or, or help me trouble that a little bit more? Mm, Sure, I can try. I mean, that's partly what makes nature such a fascinating term is because it is so difficult to define and it just had so many different meanings historically. I still tend to go back to thinkers like Raymond Williams, uh, who wrote a very important essay called Ideas of Nature, uh, as well as the British philosopher Kate Soper, whose work I really like. um, And she also has written on this question of what is nature. I mean, I think one of the issues with nature as a concept or a term is that it often gets bound up with ideology in ways we sometimes don't even recognize. That it's what Timothy Clark calls a kind of dogmatism in disguise. (laughs) Mm. Um, So that it can be wielded for certain political ends. When people say nature is, or nature shows, Mm -hmm. or it's nature's way, we may say, well, what is nature? Is nature red in tooth and claw?
0: Right is,
2: is nature inherently about mutualism and balance? You know, is nature out to destroy us or outlast us? Is it a mother figure, you know, right. as some cultural understandings might arrive at? You know, the pandemic, I think, really got us thinking about this in interesting ways. You know, was the pandemic simply nature's way? Some people took that position. But then we might also ask, what about human agency? What about human choices in the face of, you know, this this immense challenge that we are facing? What is
1: natural and what isn't?
2: Yeah, I mean, you even see this in the realm of uh, marketing, right? Natural products. There's Mm. virtually no regulation (laughs) of what can call itself a, a natural product, which then leads us into, you know, the natural being enlisted for a kind of green consumerism or greenwashing people can feel like they are getting back to nature even as their very act of consumption may be destroying it it's uh, almost a double consciousness this idea that you're helping
1: nature but really what you're doing is contributing to the destruction of the ecosystem around you whatever that may look like
2: or That's or maybe a, an ecosystem far afield, but you know it's out of sight, out of mind in a sense, right? So we might think of even the uses of many products that we we have that are you know, manufactured overseas, for instance.
1: I I remember reading in your class uh, Timothy Morton's oh I forget the book, but um, he talks about how uh, there is no such thing as a way anymore. There's Uh, oh, I think it was on hyperobjects and hyperobjectivity, because everything is just kind of in your face. Everything's just immediately present and imminent and not something you can turn away from. Uh, Or turning away from it is an act of deliberate ignorance and not something that we can in good conscience do, which is troubling.
2: It is troubling and, and also potentially disabling you know we we also need to sometimes pick our battles you know we don't want to become paralyzed either right by feeling overwhelmed by the impact of every single choice that that we make for instance i mean when i think about definitions of nature these are really matters for thinking about politics ethics morality aesthetics mm-hmm. science many of those those areas are are areas that Scholars and people working in areas of cultural and literary studies have a lot of expertise in, you know, have, have spent a lot of time thinking about. So, so I certainly don't think that environmental crisis is um, only to be solved or approached through science. It's one mode among many. Because people are people and people will bring
1: their own interpretations and biases with them mm-hmm. uh, wherever it is that they go and with whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, you're right in that thinking eco-critically can lead a little bit to that decision fatigue and sort of feeling that overwhelm. So I guess this is a bit off script and more of a personal question, but how do you deal with that? It depends on the day. <laughs> Some if, days, if you don't mind
2: sharing. No, not at all. Some days I feel kind of, um, I struggle with that. You know, I even struggle with things like green tech solutions, because on the one hand, I want to be hopeful about the capacity of green technology to, to help us ameliorate many of our looming crises, right? Well, not even looming, the crises we're already in. On the other hand, you know, I just read a book over the weekend that was given to me by a graduate student that talks about how with many, the history of many, many energy saving technologies is that they don't actually reduce consumption, they increase it. Mm. It's it's a book called The Conundrum by David Owen. And um that I found really fascinating because it kind of put its finger on something I'd been kind of wondering about or troubled by for mm. a long time. Yeah, that's a very apt title, it sounds like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet I don't I don't see that as a reason for us to give up hope either. I think one place where I do see hope for the environmental movement, maybe for my own life as well, is is in kind of thinking about how we might derive pleasure and reframe our desires in -hmm. the coming generations. I see this even with my undergrad students, that they want something different for their lives. I don't think that only needs to be framed around loss or sacrifice. There are ways in which we can reframe what desire means, what collectivity means, what mutual support means in ways that I think have a great amount of environmental potential that leave us feeling not so much atomized, alone, or depressed, and that actually can help us to feel quite hopeful. I mean, the other thing that really interests me in the kind of literary cultural realm is works that kind of experiment with other genres or other modes of narrative, for instance, that step outside of some of our very familiar narratives of decline or narratives of catastrophe or tragedy? Right? Are there ways we can leverage comic narratives, the absurd satire to approach some of the the environmental challenges that we're facing? Because I actually don't think too much earnestness always gets us where we need to go. I think we need a lot more laughter in yeah. in the environmental uh, movement broadly. So that's something that kind of interests me now. Nicole Seymour, a scholar in California, wrote a book called Bad Environmentalism a few years ago. That, that mm, I remember about. that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a nice tonic, I think, for eco-criticism in that I think a lot of eco-criticism sometimes fixates too much on doom and gloom
1: mm-hmm. it's,
2: and, and is too earnest, really. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it is hard not to be despairing and it, with everything that's happening. But yeah, you mentioned reframing and the narrative of uh, our lives, basically. And that's what drew me initially to solar punk was the fact that what it does is it takes say a narrative of scarcity and fear and turns it into one of abundance and hope Mm -hmm. and something that sort of can reprogram and reframe the way that we approach issues like pollution and things like that and look at it through new eyes i'm also similarly on the on the note of, of bringing humor and more fun i'm currently reading almanac for the anthropocene by uh Phoebe Wagner and Bronte Christopher Wieland, and um, something that they emphasize throughout this, uh, it's an anthology uh, with the editors writing sort of introductions to each section. And in those introductions from the editors, they really emphasize how this should be a fun thing, guys. You know, we need to, these are complicated issues that we need to think through, but also we can find joy and, as you said, pleasure in Observing the world around us and the way that humans are uh, adapting to the new the new ecosystems that they're that they're finding themselves into climate change uh, and how resilient they are and I was like, yeah, you know that's right. That's something that is definitely worth thinking about and
2: worth talking about and bringing to the fore a little bit more. There's this leap sometimes too quickly from what Elizabeth May has described, the leap from denial to despair when it comes to mm-hmm. climate change in particular. And she kind of says, Whoa, 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 what about what's in between? <laughs> you know, there's there are many, many steps and alternatives we can take before we get to to despair. And and one of the areas that I also teach in is indigenous literatures. And mm-hmm so much of Indigenous literature and, and culture helps us to think, step outside of that that dualism, you know, because Indigenous people have had so many things thrown at them throughout mm-hmm. history. And uh, if they had just gone straight to despair, they wouldn't still be here. We have a tremendous amount to learn from that. There's a real call for if we're not Indigenous to be humble in the face of that and maybe learn something.
1: In my Graduate studies studying the post apocalypse and post apocalyptic narratives. There's a lot of talk, especially recently, um, from diaspora communities and from indigenous communities saying, Hey, we have lived through an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. A, um, you might call it a cultural apocalypse, definitely something that involves a loss on a grand scale, but we're still here. And this is how we're dealing with it. And this is how communities all over. Um, have been dealing with these cultural apocalypses uh for centuries and we have a lot to learn from that i think and a lot that we can incorporate into our fiction going forward and into our imaginative framework and uh, the narratives that we use to think about the way that the future is going to turn out
2: definitely it's actually in that sense it's quite an exciting time you know when i think about eco-criticism as a field, so much of the early work was just about nature writing. And now we have really, well, A, I think expanded the whole idea or exploded the idea of what nature is or can be, but also that, you know, so much writing has expanded far beyond that, it gets us really thinking in in much broader terms. So, yeah. and And maybe you know, there are genres that especially have been used more in other cultures or more historically that we might think about turning back to. Mm-hmm. Um, Amitav Ghosh, a, a writer and scholar who who wrote a book a few years ago called The Great Derangement, talks a bit about maybe we need to rethink about epic frameworks again as a, mm-hmm. as a way for navigating climate change, you know, that he thinks that the realist novel, as it emerged out of Europe, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, maybe it's just not up to the task of thinking about something that is so multi-scalar, that has such long temporalities. Maybe epic is a is a more fitting genre in a way or approach for for thinking about some of the problems that climate change confronts us with today. I'd I'd love to read an epic
1: that dealt explicitly with with climate change and climate. Yeah. I wanted to end off by asking you, why is it important in your words for people to sort of think about the questions that ego criticism challenges us with um, as they engage with the environment or the environment as it's represented in literature or other media like movies? And as you mentioned, commercials today.
2: Um, one of the reasons why it's important to engage with these questions is, you know, maybe it goes all the way back to the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said, The limits of my language are the limits of my world. You know, the language that we use to describe our world, to describe challenges we're confronting, the things that we celebrate <laughs> through language and image and culture tell us a lot about what we value. And all, but conversely, what we don't value and so i actually think cultural production in its many forms does a lot to shape human conversations you know about what we value or don't and why and and how we may also need to adjust those values or imagine otherwise going forward of course literature has long also been a form of escape but i think I would maybe reframe it a little bit as a kind of imagining otherwise Mm -hmm. um, about possible futures as well, which I I think probably fits in with some of the things that your listeners are interested in.
1: Yeah. Speculation as a form of mood boarding possibility, I guess. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Dr. Kerber. I I think we really should be thinking about and investigating the philosophical frameworks or mindsets that we bring to climate justice work, since the imagination, I think, is so crucial to our ability to take action. Thank you. And do you have any projects or publications that you'd like to promote before we go or a social media presence?
2: Yeah, I had a book, an article come out just uh, last year that is looking at climate change, tourism in the Arctic, (laughs) and um, thinking about borders and boundaries, and uh, especially in the Canadian Arctic, and also thinking about melting ice and how that's going to probably open up Arctic waters for ever more tourism, especially cruise ship tourism, and and thinking about the ethics around that. But also, in that article, I really look at how. Speaking of cultural forms, I look at a lot of advertising and promotion for these cruises. Mm. How do they get people to want to do these trips without depressing them, um, without inducing some kind of cognitive dissonance? Well, I'd be uh,
1: interested in, in hearing about that as well.
2: <laughs> so that, that came out in the Journal of Canadian Studies last year. Now, um, coming up in the next couple of months, I'll have a piece coming out in uh, Studies in American Indian Literature's, um, the journal *Sale* on the idea of consent and uh, writing by Indigenous women and two-spirit authors. So thinking about consent in terms of sexual violence, but also thinking about how some of those ideas also translate over or don't to thinking about environmental violence. That reminds me
1: of the research I did on ecofeminism and ecofeminist sort of thought. Uh, And yeah, yeah, I'd be very interested in
2: reading that when it comes out. Good luck with with publication. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to sign up for our Patreon. We really do need your support in order to keep bringing you interviews with really interesting people doing really interesting things to make the world a better place. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and in Germany. The opening and closing music of this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Until the next episode, keep dreaming. And keep up the good work.